Hello, Julian. Hello, Mike. I hear tonight the game's afoot. Ah, it is indeed, for we have Emily Holmes, a veterinary nurse and entrepreneur. Wow, that sounds like an interesting story. Let's get her on. Yeah. Hi, I'm Mike Brampton. And my name is Julian Hope. Welcome to Veterinary Ramblings. Emily, you're a, you're a veterinary nurse, aren't you? Yes, I am, yes. How long have you been a veterinary nurse? Um, so I've been a vet nurse for eight years. Right. Um, qualified. I started university in 2013. Right. Um, worked all throughout that. And then I qualified in 2017 because um, I did my honours degree. Um, mm. And then when I was, I would probably say, third year of uni is when I met my other half. Um, and right. I moved down to Worcestershire um, just before I sat my finals. So I've been in Worcestershire now for about four and a bit years. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. You'll get rid of the accent, don't worry. That'll, that will it's, gradually it's, fade. It'll go. It'll go. <laughs> is, is your other half a, a, a vet nurse? No, no. He um, in his words, um, I'll always remember... Um, he's not vetty at all. Mm-hmm. And I remember we'd not known each other long. And he was like, oh, yeah, um, I was talking to mum and I, I told her that you're a vet. <laughs> Safe to say we're still together and everything is fine. But that night he learned the difference between a vet and a vet nurse and he has never made that mistake since. No. no <laughs> how, so how, how is he with those, those vet conversations over dinner about pus? and blood and abscesses and... Um, I mean we don't talk about it okay um, he's quite squeamish um, but my best friend is an equine nurse right. so I get to have my outlet there we talk about all sorts of stuff and we um, yeah <laughs> we get, I get my outlet that way okay okay so it begs the question then Emily I mean you, you say that you, um, you you started becoming a vet nurse in 2013, did you say? Yes, yeah. Why? If I'm completely honest, I didn't know what I I wanted to be when I was older. This is going back a few years now. Okay. Um, And I always thought I wanted to be a teacher. You know, when you were at school and you did like, what do you want to be when you grow up? I always went as a teacher. I always thought that was what I wanted to do. Um, And then I went and did my A-levels because I knew that I wanted to go to university. Just didn't know doing what. Um, And it wasn't until about two weeks before the UCAS deadline, um, I decided to go and do some work experience in a vet practice because I, it was for me, it was because I was quite outdoorsy. um, I either wanted to be a teacher or a vet. So I went and did some work experience in a practice and went in there fully thinking, you know, like, you know, I'm going to get into vet school. I'm going to do like, I'm going to do this. And I had it all mapped out. And then I met some of the nurses and I found myself following them more. And when I really got to understand what they did and their role, I just fell in love with it. And I was like, this is what I want to do. Um, And at the time, there weren't many universities that were doing um, the degree route for nurses. Mm -hmm. Um, I believe it was Edinburgh, Bristol, Nottingham and and Warwickshire College, uh, which is where I went. Um, and I knew that I wanted to be somewhere that was in a commutable distance because I still had my horse at the time and he was at home. Um, right. And because of health reasons for him, it was easier for me to keep him at home than it was for me to move him somewhere closer. 
Um, so I used to commute weekly from Chesterfield to Leamington Spa to go to university, um, which was quite a few miles. <laughs> mm, yeah, um, yeah. About, about 400 miles a week. Um, it's, a fair old, it's a fair old distance. Yeah, um, safe to say I've got quite good at driving. <laughs> um, it, yeah, it helps you didn't ride that. then? No, no. Oh, God, no. It, it took me forever. <laughs> he was really slow, bless him. Um, yeah, so that that was that, really. Um, I applied, I had my interview, and I got in, and I never looked back. Cool. Do you feel you missed out on the university life, being back and forth and spending time with, you, with your horse? Um, I... If I think when I reflect on it, sometimes I think I did because mm-hmm. it was so full on. So obviously I'd go home, I'd be looking after the horse, I'd be working. Uh, while I was working as a student, I did on call. So I had a lot of that that life. But if I'm really truly honest with myself, I was never really a party person anyway. Right. Even before I went to university, because I lived on a small holding, there was always something to do around and being outside. And I much preferred as sad as it sounds mucking out spending time with the horse and the dog just being outside mm-hmm. then i did spending three hours to get ready and go out clubbing with my mates so so to a certain extent then party central lemmington spa yeah was, like, I'm not a little bit say, alien to you anyway no i mean to be honest i didn't so i lived um i didn't live in chesterfield i lived just outside of it so it was about half an hour to get to chesterfield so right. even if we were to go if i was to go anywhere then obviously it'd be you know, I'd need to drive there or I'd need to get somebody to drop me off or get a taxi, which was ridiculously expensive because it was quite a long way. Mm. So it never really, I was never really entertained by that scene. Mm. Um, I did, don't get me wrong, I did go out for like a couple of drinks here and there when I was at uni, but never, it never affected my studies. Like that came first to me because I wanted to do well. Um, I think that that vet trait, even though I wasn't like in the vet industry then of being like a high achiever and wanting to do well, um, was the driving thing for me. And as long as I got to go home and, you know, spend some time horse go hacking or doing whatever, just being outdoors, that was my reward. It wasn't necessarily. Yeah. I have to say, I think, I, think I, can speak for, I think I can speak for Mike as well as for myself. When I say that uh, university for, for us, it was, was a, a, a dull time. We uh, we, we never yeah. exited from the halls of study. No. Uh, I, I personally spend every morning and evening in the library. Uh, never, library, ever, library, ever, yeah, the library. Ever drinking, ever? No, 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 um, no, no, no passes. No, uh, and yeah, yeah. I'm not. I'm not saying that was like a complete, you know, sort of nerd and just sat in the library. Like there were times when I went out, but it just wasn't. Compared to sort of my friends who were doing other courses and were there full time, it was like I was there for two days and I'd have two full days of lectures and then go back and I'd be at work the next day. So (laughs) it literally was like I'd go there, do my studies, go to work. It's the weekend again, go back, do my studies. So it was quite a rigorous routine. So (laughs) to be fair, there wasn't really much time for me. To, to go out if I wanted to and if there was then it was a case of just making sure that you know I was up to date with everything um and just you know it was it sort of was gone enough in a blink of an eye to be honest yeah, yeah. <laughs> like li- library or training yeah uh, yeah every, every Wednesday night was training night and then mm. match on Saturday yeah yes, yeah, yes. and then library the then back to the library 
Yeah, the team the team used to drag me out of the library on the Saturday to, to go to the match and stuff. Did they sometimes force you to have a glass of something alcoholic, Mike? Or yeah. did you manage to escape that? Well, no, that, that that was that's the problem with rugby football, isn't it? Yeah, is the, yes. the sort of the social side of it, and um, and I, I nearly got banned from the library. Did, did you? Yeah, did you? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Was that because you vomited the Encyclopedia Britannica? Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah, when we when we went to college, Emily, we, there was no such thing as um, the interweb or mobile no. phones or stuff like that. So you'd have to tell your friends where they'd find you. Library. 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 It was yeah. quiet. It was warm and it was quiet in there. You could get your head yeah. down. Yeah. Help yeah. a hangover. <laughs> oh. If only. If only. Yeah. <laughs> oh, memories of the library. So did you, you you'd always set your heart on, on doing the veterinary degree, veterinary nursing degree, uh, not doing it, uh, I said the traditional route, the yes. block release in practice. Yeah, um, I I don't know, I don't know what it was that drove me, um, but I remember always being, even as I went through school, I um, I'm an only child, so obviously not that I had any pressure from my parents at all that you know you have to go to university and you have to do this, but I always wanted to make them proud. Um, I remember sitting down at this is going back to um, to high school now. I remember sitting down with sort of the tutor who did like work experience and stuff like that. Um, and I was sort of she was a really good family friend, um, and she was saying, you know, you've got you've got it in you to go to university, and you can open so many doors by doing that. Mm-hmm. If you've got the opportunity, take it. So mm-hmm. that kind of was. In, it wasn't instilled in me in a negative way, but more in, a, in an empowering way of like, you know, mm. you, you can do this, go for it. Um, so that kind of stuck with me. And like I say, I wasn't really sure which way I was going to go, um, but I'm just glad that I did. And I think even if I had my time again, as much as it made me pull my hair out, especially trying to write my dreaded dissertation, um, I think I would still do it that way again, because I think it, I, as much as it was, you know, quite heavy, heavy going, um, it for me personally, I wouldn't have it any other way. Okay, mm-hmm. so you're you're standing in front of a group of of younger students who are professing an interest in veterinary nursing, and we've sort of touched here on the the university entry route, and Julian briefly touched or hinted at the, um, forgive me. Well, the- the block release, where obviously you're working and then and studying uh, in part time. What would your advice be? Um, my advice would be that you there's no right or wrong way. Mm-hmm. It's whatever works for you, because I remember when I went to look at different universities, I looked at Harper Adams and, you know, mm-hmm. Nottingham Trent and all of that. And there were different routes that you could do. So for me, the way that the way that I said earlier, my university worked was that you went to uni twice a week Uh and then you worked for the rest of it. But there were some degrees where it was like you say block release, where it was like six week on six week off. Mm -hmm. To me, I didn't like that idea because for me, I'm quite a, even though I'm quite, I'd like to think I'm quite academic. I like that sort of way of learning. 
I also found it super useful that I would learn things in practice and then in uni, sorry, and then be able to apply it in practice that week or ask questions in that week because I'm quite, well, I definitely was back then, maybe not so much now, but I wasn't very confident back then. Mm-hmm. Um, so being able to learn something and then take that and apply it on a weekly basis worked better for me. But I know some people that, you know, they prefer to do, you know, completely focus on their studies and then completely focus on work. Like I say, there's no right or wrong. It's mm. whatever works for you. And just know that everybody else, everybody's different. You know, what I might like might be different to what you guys prefer. And there's nothing wrong with that. But explore every option and don't and make an informed choice rather than and think I've got to do it this way because this is the way that everybody's doing it that's not the case at all there's so many ways that you can learn to be a vet nurse you know there's the diploma route there's foundation degree there's honours degree you know even if you wanted to if you want to do the diploma route you can top up and do your honours degree if you really wanted to there's so many ways out there it's not a straight line so there's accessibility from every angle mm-hmm. I think I think it's great I think it's great and I, I think yeah. one of the big things about it is that it's led to the incredible enrichment of the veterinary nursing profession because there are almost instantly then different uh i won't say levels because that tends to suggest that some are uh, are innately better than others some some no but I, no but i back. understand what you mean because but it's different it's view, different view. viewpoints yeah yeah definitely and it is it is still very much an evolving profession uh you know, runners as they were originally, the Royal Animal Nursing Auxiliaries uh, were around till the, correct if I'm wrong, I think it's about the, the early 80s. Yeah, uh, I think it was around then, yeah. And they they only came on the scene, I think, in the, uh, in the early 70s. So it really is a, a very, a very new profession. Yeah. And one that is... You mentioned the word empowering earlier. I'm going to pick up on that later, but, but actually, that the nursing profession, the nursing professions, I think, is more empowering these days than ever it was. With that comes responsibility, because of course you are now accountable to the to the RCBS. Um, and it'd be interesting to know. Interesting, any of our listeners out there? Hello, the listeners out there, um, to to gain your views on on what. What are your thoughts on, on veterinary nursing? What, what do you understand by veterinary nurse? Because I think it's still a very misunderstood profession. Yeah. We, do, do, um, do, you want, do you want to take off from Sorry. That? No, no, <laughs> um, no, no, no. I, I realise I'm, I'm, I always gab too much and then um, Mike gives me a, a virtual kick under the table. <laughs> <laughs> I'm exactly the same, so I get it. Um, I The best way that I describe it to people that are from a non-veterinary background is when you go into a GP surgery, so a doctor surgery, you have your doctors and you have your nurses. It's the same principle for vets and nurses. I think a lot of people have a misconception because vets are always, they're not necessarily, but they're the client facing. So the, the client comes in to see the vet. If the vet needs help, they then go out the back or they grab a nurse to help them. And I think because in some cases, you know, clients, they might get some interaction with the nurse on reception. But I think then they just ought to, I don't I, I assume that then you would think, oh, you know, the, that's the receptionist mm-hmm. might not necessarily be the nurse. Um, and then unless they actually get to interact with you or like say, unfortunately, their pet needs to stay in the hospital, 
again, sometimes they may predominantly speak to the vets, but ultimately it's the nurses that are caring for them behind the scenes. And it's how much really nurses get involved in that care. And going back to what you said earlier, I think for me as well, even from the eight years that I've been doing it, the profession has come on massively. You know, like I was um, my um, good friend, Laura, she did a workshop a couple of weeks ago, I believe it was, um, about doing endocrine um, sort of like clinics in how nurses can get involved in setting up those kind of clinics for endocrine disorders. So even just nurses doing things like that to empower and promote things and this is what us as nurses can do has grown massively even if it's even in in the last three or four years um and I just think it's really important to for people to understand that you know yes we are we're sort of we do have to go under the direction of a vet granted we can't just go off and do things willy-nilly but we are accountable for our own actions it is a profession in its own right Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think are really important because if I'm if I'm being honest and ask you guys this question, how would you do if you didn't have nurses? We'd be stuffed, completely stuffed. Um, it wouldn't it wouldn't be a profession anymore. The veterinary profession would would stop mm. uh, yeah. be, because we're a team, and I'm going to include receptionists in that as well. Yeah. Uh, that there there is a complete team, and it's. I, I guess one thing that, that that you didn't really mention there, or, or if you did, I, I didn't pick up on it. Uh, one thing that nurses are exceptionally good at is communicating. Yeah. And it doesn't matter how good a job anyone does, if they don't communicate that job, then the the owners won't be any the wiser. Yeah. Uh, vets, well, we're normally too, too busy or too stressed or... Or, or, or two up in the clouds to, to, to really chat to the owners, to think, well, how, how best to, to find out how they're feeling about their pet and make sure that we've addressed their concerns. We yeah. see a problem. We want to fix it. We give some medication and say, off you go. That'll be fantastic. Yeah. It might still die, of course, but yeah, it'll be fantastic. And you're, you're then the ones who are able to say to them, you know, did, did, did you really come about that? Because he's prescribed this for an ear infection but um i noticed initially you're quite worried about the little patch on the skin there you know do you want me to yeah the the way that i describe it is that you guys as vets come along like a whirlwind throw all this jargon around give them some medication out the client comes and then almost they almost feel like they can't ask a question because they feel too stupid like a, there's no question is a stupid question ever, but it's the. Oh, I've asked some. Yeah, he has. <laughs> Don't go there, Emily. I'm not going to go there. We're just going to breeze over that one. Most um, most questions aren't stupid questions. No. Yeah. Um, and then we come, and then we come out, and you know, sort of, it's have it. We it, the, we have that brilliant ability of being able to have that relationship with clients, for them to come out to us and go, what does this mean? And then with that communicator, we bridge that gap between you guys being able to break that down into something that clients may be able to understand better. And then the client coming in and saying, there's something wrong with my dog. I don't know what it is, but I just know they're not right. To then sort of almost play a part in communicating from all angles, because yes, we mean animals can't talk, but 
from a vet's perspective, we can take what you've told us and translate that. From a pet's perspective and from a client's perspective, we can have a chat with them, come back to you guys and say, um, you know, Mrs. Jones is coming in with Alfie. She's been really worried because over the last couple of weeks, he's not particularly eating very well or, you know, she's noticed that he's quite sluggish on his walks. I know he's in for, you know, for his booster, but is there any chance you could just talk to him about, you know, mobility or something like that? You know what I mean? Just pulling those little fine details out of there. So you just, you guys just um, say if I'm wrong, but you just see, oh, they're coming in for their annual booster. Perfect, Brill, that's fine. But actually there might be some other things that go with that that not not saying that you wouldn't think of them, but unless you talk to the client and have an in-depth conversation with them about it, or at least then if you do, if they do mention something to you, then you turn around and say, that's great. Tell you what, we'll book you in with one of the nurses in one of the clinic slots and she can have a bit more of an in-depth conversation with you because I appreciate that you guys are strapped for time. Um, Have that conversation with them, relay that information back to you and work as a team in giving that client the best care possible and giving sort of take it delegate you can delegate to us we've got the time to be able to invest and able to have a full in-depth conversation with them and come back to you with the essentially a bullet pointed list of everything yeah. you then say we can do this bit do you think um you're absolutely correct i was just wondering do you think the last couple of years with the pandemic has made that role even more important yes because it has I been think... quite difficult, hasn't it? And and I know I was speaking to a friend of mine from uh, uh, the Veterinary Defence Society who said that actually the, almost all the complaints are are about communication. Definitely. And I think, I know certainly working with several vets over the years, you know, some vets are better at communicating than others. There's nothing wrong with that because we're all different. But I think it's a case of knowing, knowing what vets and nurses strengths and weaknesses are mm. and really doubling down on that and saying you know there, there will be some nurses out there that could think of nothing worse than doing nurse clinics I used to be one of those nurses now I'm a lot I'm a lot better and I actually enjoy doing it I enjoy having that chat with Mrs. What changed, what changed? Um, I think confidence okay. I think you when I started I know it took me sort of like four years to graduate and get my qualification to actually be an RBN, but there's a certain period of time when you're newly qualified where you, you're so used to spinning all these plates, you know, you've got your MPL to do, so your online portfolio, you've got your coursework, so you've got exams, you've got your practical exams, um, you've got everything, you're spinning all of these plates and trying to be a human being in the middle of it. Mm. And then all of a sudden you've qualified the dust has settled. You're not spinning all these plates anymore. And you think, what the hell am I going to do with my life? So you scramble and you go for all these different things. You think, right, I want to do a postgrad or I'm going to, or I'm going to go off and do this or that, or I need to, I need to know now what my niche is going to be. You're not going to have it all figured out and that's okay. But the more that you exercise that muscle, I always say consistency is like a muscle. And unless you exercise that, so, yeah, when I first started doing those clinics, I wasn't the most confident. Nine times out of ten, I would feel silly for not knowing what the answer was. But actually, over time, I'm quite comfortable and happy now to say to owners, do you know what? I don't actually know the answer to this question. Leave it with me. Let me speak to somebody who can give me the answer and I will get back to you. And I think having that, like I say, comes back to communication. 
when owners know where they stand and when they know that, you know, they don't have all the answers, but they're willing to go off and research for you, not just say, oh, I don't know, sorry. The fact that they're willing to put that extra time in to give you the answer that you want to make you feel, you know, give you some confidence, mm-hmm. that is worth more to them than... Uh, yeah, I think I think that's absolutely right. And, and, and what springs to mind is um, is how valuable the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is. Because in that situation, on the back of the book, in big, bold letters, are the words, don't panic. Absolutely. So if you're faced with a client where you're not sure as to exactly what's gone on or you don't have the definitive answer, don't panic. You can look it up and come back to them. I love I love Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. It's my favourite my favorite book, my favourite series of books. Uh, and I, I, I took a... Uh, Almost a throwaway quote from uh, the Hitchhiker's Guide now that's gone into modern veterinary lexicon, which is an SEP. Have you come across that, Emily? No, I haven't. An SEP. It's somebody else's problem. <laughs> and, and quite often uh, when, uh, when we're chatting at the practice, uh, you know, something will come up and one of the nurses will say to me, I reckon that's an SEP, don't you? I feel so proud that I've introduced one of the <laughs> throwaway lines into, uh, into the practice talk. I think I'll have to start using that one. <laughs> mm. So what, what's your least favourite part of nursing then? Um, oh, I don't... Is it weird to say I don't know? No. No, not at all. Not at all. I can't think of anything off the top of my head. The only one I would say the area is ophthalmology. Do you know that's a lot of people say that vets and nurses? Mm. No, it's not for me. Although, from from an anesthesia perspective, it was quite fun. So, for I think it was about um, not long after I qualified, it must have been under a year, um, I went to work in multidisciplinary referral. um, And I that's where I found my love for anesthesia. That was what I used to hate actually thinking about it now as a student. You could not get me in theatre. I would avoid it like the plague. I absolutely hated it. And I think it was because I didn't understand. I didn't have the knowledge and I didn't feel like I could do a good enough job because I didn't understand. So I was like, I'm just going to stay away from that. I'm just not going to just not going to deal with that. Um, And then when I went to work in referral, I actually went to work in the surgical department and I worked in the Mm. surgical department for about a year. Um, Absolutely loved it. Fell in love with it of any anaesthetic, anything like that, give me anything juicy, I'm happy. Mm-hmm. Stick me in theatre and I was happy. So that was one thing that I never used to like. Um, in terms of like ophthalmology, I don't know, there's just something about eyes that just creeps me out. But then I'd do some of the procedures, um, like cataract surgery and stuff like that, and I used to find it so fascinating. Mm. So anaesthesia is your favourite then, is it? Yeah. Um, and I enjoy, I do enjoy talking to clients, as, mm-hmm. as sad as that sounds. Um, and it always makes, it, it makes me smile when people say, oh, you know, I'd love to, I'd love to work in veterinary, but I just, you know, it's so sad working, you know, I just love animals so much. And I just sit there and I smile to myself and I think, how, how naive are you? <laughs> Thinking that it's just working with animals. If anything, it's working more with people than it is with animals. That's very true. Mm, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> but I'll just I'll let you have that one. <laughs> so would that would that be would that be some of your advice to those students sitting in front of you 
who all want to go, I want to work with animals. Would that be part of your advice? Yes. <laughs> be mindful that you're mainly working with humans. You are predominantly working with clients, people right. that are that love their pets to death, that don't understand what's going on, but they want the best for that animal because a lot of people, their animals are their babies. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of people are choosing to have animals over, you know, sort of children. Um, and I get it. Like for mm. my dog and my cat, um, I... I'm, I am the nurse that will sit there and be like, just monitor, you'll be fine, don't worry about it. And then if there's anything wrong with man because he's so accident prone, I'm literally the first one there that's like, somebody please fix him. I'm <laughs> like, I turn into the complete opposite. I'm like a client zilla. <laughs> I think that, that's that's common across the world, isn't it? it it's the yeah the whole thing that um, and it, it's a frustrating responsibility that you you bear that you know what is going to be best for your family member. That's the problem. Yeah. And you know who it is that you only, you would trust with that role. Yeah. But what a weight of responsibility do you then place upon their shoulders? Yeah. Because they know you. Well, it's like whenever, so I always said, I remember when um, I had um, Seb castrated and it was, Whoa, who's Seb? The dog, the dog. I thought it was your boyfriend. No. Oh, right. Oh, I was gonna say, I was no, thinking, that's that next was... week. Just don't tell oh, okay. me. <laughs> so I, th- I thought we'd uncovered something there. It's a sense no. the dog. No, 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 no. Sense <laughs> um, the dog, right. And okay. I, um, I booked him in um, on my day off because I always remember when, um, you know, when like, staff animals have come in mm. and people would say, you know, do you mind doing the anaesthetic? And I've always been one of those nurses. I don't know if it's rightly or wrongly, but I'd always feel a little bit uncomfortable mm. because I knew the pressure that would come with that. But I also knew that if anything went wrong, I would never stop blaming myself. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't want to put that pressure on somebody else. So mm-hmm. I booked him in on my day off and I dealt with him on my own. And people were like, why have you done that? You may as well just brought him in and let somebody else do it. And I was like, because if anything, anything went wrong, yeah. I wouldn't want them to put that same pressure what I would put on myself if it was somebody else's dog. That's not fair. Mm. So I dealt with him myself. Obviously, it was fine and everything went okay. Mm. But you, you never know, do you? And I wouldn't want to put that on somebody because I understand that that's a lot to ask. Mm. It is. It is. I'm, I'm the same though, Emily. Uh, if ever I do anything to my cats or my dog or my tortoise, then I, I've got to do it because I, I don't want that responsibility to be on the bet. Mm. Uh, yeah. To, you know, if, if if something well things go wrong things don't always work out and it's not a feeling that i'm the only person who can do it i'm the best but it really no, is a feeling that it, I, it, I don't want to give someone else that responsibility yeah it's just it's not i i could empathize and put myself in their shoes and if something happened to someone else's animal i would feel awful so why if i can help putting that on someone else i would because then if it does, if anything was to go wrong and it was me, I've only got myself to blame, mm. albeit, yes, there will be a lot of blame for a long time, but mm-hmm. I can process that. Yeah. yeah. I would hate to think that I'm putting that on somebody. Yeah. So whilst you've been doing all of this stuff, um, developing your love and knowledge in anaesthesia, working your degree, you've also found time to start your own company. Yes. What made you do this? Um, so if I'm completely honest, 
I kind of fell into it. If I go back a little bit, so yeah. mm-hmm. uh, when I started in referral, um, and even before that, my journey as a student, I would like to say was not straightforward, as I can imagine nobody else's is. Um, and I did um, sort of have my ups and downs with my mental health and all of that, which I think unfortunately does come with the territory, but I also think isn't talked about enough. Okay. Um, so I decided that if I felt comfortable enough sharing my experiences, uh-huh. because I didn't want somebody to go through what I went through as a student, because mm. it wasn't, the, it was, there were some times when it was quite dark and that's not to bring the mood down, but that's just me being honest. No, that's fine. And if I, and how could I do that? So then I saw that some people had started, you know, using social media to sort of talk about certain topics. And I was like, I'm going to do that. So it sort of started from there, really. So I started off as, um, oh gosh, I think it was Sherlock the vet nurse because my surname is Holmes and my nickname as a kid was Sherlock. So that's where that came from. Mm -hmm. Um, And I just started sharing my experiences and what, you know, sort of any lessons I'd learned along the way or, you know, if there was any like little tips and tricks that I'd picked up here and there from working in different practices that, you know, that I could share with people. It wasn't necessarily from a clinical point of view. It was more from a personal experience point of view because I understood as a new graduate how um, anticlimactic, I suppose, it is to graduate. Because like I said to you earlier, you're spinning all of these plates, you're doing all of these things, you graduate and then the dust settles and you're like, oh, where do I go from here? Yeah. And there's suddenly a big hole, isn't there, where there was studying and excitement and preparation there's suddenly this, okay, I'm working. Suddenly I feel as though my life has ended. Yes. And it's like, I don't, you so you get so used to and so comfortable with that high level of stress for a long period of time that then it's all gone and you're like, oh, oh, is this what adulting looks like? <laughs> so then um, that kind of evolved really into mental health is something that I've always thought is really important. Mm-hmm. Um and talking about it more and more gained traction and people were having conversations and I was having conversations with people. And it became very aware to me that as veterinary professionals, we aren't very good at looking after number one. Uh-huh. We give so much of ourselves to our clients and our patients, but when it comes to looking after ourselves, we don't know how to deal with that. So then it was just sort of evolving that conversation from just my experiences and journey on introducing different things of self-care, like journaling and mindset and all of that that comes with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that transitioned to me then being called the Empowering RVN. Um, mm-hmm. One, because um, Sherlock the Vet Nurse, people didn't really get the connection unless I explained like I did to you guys that my surname is Holmes I was called Sherlock and all of that mm-hmm. and yes empowering doesn't really you know that's still not very self-explanatory but sort of like the M is for Emily so that's me but mm-hmm. also my I through the connections that I've made in the net and sort of the relationships that I've built I want to empower other people to look after themselves and know that they they are worth it because I've been through times where I didn't feel like I was worth why would I look after myself? Like, that's not a thing. Mm. So I want to empower people to start taking those small steps forward and to start, you know, sort of looking 
at themselves as another entity that needs to be cared for. It's not just about the role that you do and separating yourself from your professional self, being able to take mm-hmm. off that professional hat. Because let's be honest, when we come away from work, how many times can you genuinely say when you leave work that you go home and do not think about work at all? <laughs> yeah, I think I think there was once in uh, 98. Um, I stopped momentarily. No, I didn't. I, I, yeah, exactly. We've, so we've had it, this. We've we've spoken about this quite often before as well, Emily. And I think it it, it summarised or can be quite nicely summarised. I can't remember who said it to us. Um, who cares for the carers? Yeah. 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 And I, I think it's an important conversation to be had mm-hmm. because at the end of the day, I think the pandemic has definitely put, you know, a real spotlight on this topic of conversation. But I think it is something that there is a lot of stigma that's around it. Whether mm-hmm. we talk about that stigma or not, it is there. Mm-hmm. don't know why mm-hmm. and how we can get through it but it needs to be broken down and we need to start having these, these conversations should be normal. It shouldn't be, you know, feeling like you're treading on eggshells because you're asking someone, you know, you say to someone, Oh, hi, how are you? And you're like, yeah, yeah, I'm great. Thanks. No, but how are you? And then people kind of stop and go, Oh, I I wasn't expecting that. But Mm -hmm. then it's having the confidence to have those conversations with people and knowing what to say and understanding that, what you say isn't right or wrong, but there's always a way that we can, you know, not necessarily be more tactful, but about the conversations, but just have them more openly so that they do become normalised. So that was, that's kind of where I was at um, up until um, sort of late last year. Um, And then through my, some like friendships that I built through social media, um, a friend of mine sort of reached out a message, they know who they are, um, and said, can um, you help us with our content? You know, we're really struggling to try and keep up with all of this. Is there any chance you could give us a hand? And I was like, yeah, why not? What, what, right. sort, what sort of content? What, what platform? So social media right. content. So right, okay. um, stuff that goes out on like Instagram and Facebook and stuff like that. Okay. Um, because I'd been doing it for like up to three years from about three years at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, I sort of said, yeah, I enjoy doing it. I, I love doing it. I love communicating with people and building those relationships. Right. I'll give it a go. Um, and it kind of snowballed from there really to then, okay. you know, friends saying, oh, you know, um, so-and-so, I know so-and-so is really struggling with the content at the minute. Do you mind helping them? And I was like, yeah, why not? Right. And then it kind of, and then I, I sat back and I thought about it and I was like, well, I've always said that the social media side of what I do outside of work, I would love to be able to do that full time because as much as I love my nursing, I also love this side of it of helping other veterinary professionals, regardless of whether they're clinical or Mm non-clinical, because I understand that I've worked in full time in clinical practice and trying to run that alongside is hard work. Social media in itself is a full-time job for some people. So mm-hmm. I appreciate that that mental barrier and that sort of conversation of, you know, wanting to help as many people as possible. Right. So I thought, I'm going to give it a go. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so I set up my company, Empowering Media Services, mm-hmm. um, which is essentially helping vet-based businesses, whether that's practices, so clinical or non-clinical, mm-hmm. um, create their social media content and be able to give them their time back so that then they can still have time for their self mm-hmm. or whether they can then focus on other aspects of the business which can help them grow. Um, and yes, it's not from a clinical standpoint, um, mm. which I think I've had a lot of imposter syndrome around being an RVN for so it's all I've ever done. I've never known anything other than being a clinical RVN. So it's a big journey in itself. Um, but it's one that in, in my gut, I know that it's what I want to do and I thrive right. off of it. So I think it's, I still want to have those important conversations and I want to, Still, I'd still take all of that knowledge and those skills that I've learned in clinical practice, but been able to apply that into something where I feel like I can have those conversations on a more open playing field in terms of I'm not just focusing on one practice of where I work. Mm -hmm. I'm looking industry wide. I can make a a far greater impact industry wide with what I'm doing from a non-clinical perspective to help benefit those of clinical perspective so than I can working in full-time practice. Does does the service then in effect bring your clinical experiences and your clinical skills to help a vet practice, for example, put their message across to yeah. their client base? Yes. Right. Okay. So it, it's not necessarily you working with a practice on their mental health side no it's more of it's, it's, it's more so it's, it's helping content. yeah so it, it's helping uh the village green veterinary practice reach out in a social media savvy way yes spread the word as to what they are doing to their clientele yes who revolve mm-hmm. around the village green yes Right, and I okay. think from, sorry, I know that's a little bit confusing, but I that's think fine. also it gives me a greater capacity to be able to then focus on the mental health side of things as well. Like mm-hmm. I've always, I've had, I've got the, at some point in 2022, one of my goals is I want to become a mental health first aider. Okay. And I want. I, I did that last year. I'd strongly recommend it. It's great. Yeah. And I want to, you know, it sounds daft to say out loud, but it's, standard and mandatory that you have a physical first aider within any workplace Mm -hmm. so why is it not the same for mental health so Mm -hmm. it's been able to i want to build that skill base but then also have that because like we say we're only my person one of my favorite sayings is you're a human being not a human doing there's only so much capacity (laughs) that you've got as one person for Mm. all the things that you want to achieve so I think for me, in order to get my message across in terms of trying to help in terms of mental health, it has taken for me to take a different path with the content creating because that is something that I genuinely enjoy. Mm-hmm. It still means that I can, I'm still an RVN. I will always be an RVN. And it means that I've then got a greater capacity to be able to then help with the wider issue of mental health within the veterinary industry as a whole, mm-hmm. rather than sort of spending my time in one particular practice mm. and not being able to make waves, so to speak, 
for the wider industry because I want to help. I want to help people. I think it, this goes again back to the beginning of the conversation when I said I wanted to be a teacher. It's not necessarily that I, I like teaching people. It's more that I want to help people. That's who I am as a person. And as much as I can do and as extreme as it sounds, um, I sort of go by the ethos of I never want anybody to go through what I did because I wouldn't wish that upon my worst enemy. Uh-huh. And also, if I can stop somebody from leaving the profession, whether mm-hmm. that be because they move out of a clinical role or because, unfortunately, their mental health is too much for them and they end up taking their own life. If I can stop that happening, even if it's just to one person, uh-huh. I can die a happy woman. Uh-huh. Because sure. that's all that matters to me. I care so much about the profession as a whole. Yes, it's got it's it's like a big dysfunctional family, and yeah, we all have fights and bickers and all of that jazz. But ultimately, we all have a passion for the same thing. Uh-huh. It's just about expanding that, so that we encompass ourselves in that as well, and it's not just about our patients and our clients. It, it is, and I think yeah. it it is absolutely about taking care of ourselves and acknowledging that there are times when we can't take care of ourselves uh, yeah. everyone would agree that uh, if you've got appendicitis and you have an appendectomy then someone says yeah, well, why why were you off in the last three weeks well I had an appendix out okay fair enough why were you off in the last three weeks oh, I had a bit of a breakdown oh okay yeah. <clears throat> well uh, sorry to hear that um, uh, coffee yeah exactly yeah. it's taking that awkwardness out of the conversation isn't it and just mm. sort of not saying that you need to take a lighter hearted approach to it but just making it a normal conversation like you say if if you went in for a procedure they'd be like oh i'm sorry to hear that i hope you're doing okay but then when you you know if you throw into that oh i had a really bad depressive episode and i couldn't get out of bed it's almost like people go oh and it's stopping that from happening and making that i'm really sorry how can we it help is. you <laughs> And the only way to do that is to is to create a normal dialogue on it. And we, and we started to do that in our practice. Uh, we, we all noticed that actually Mondays hit us harder than, than ever before. And it, it just took uh, one of my colleagues to say, you know, this is crap. We all now really dread Mondays. What are we going to do about it? Because I I cry every Sunday night. And now, um, and now they don't open on a Monday. No, no, no we, we stay closed. We, we all go to the library. Yeah. Got a pub. And the library. Uh, <laughs> the library. <laughs> yeah. So, so you're, um, you're, you're teaching people then uh, to, to communicate. So you've gone full circle. You wanted to be a teacher. You became a veterinary nurse, which you say you'll always be. But actually, what you are first and foremost is what you always wanted to be, which is a teacher. Yeah. Yeah, and I think... It, can you teach us tonight? Can you teach us something? I mean, I can have a bash. I mean, have you ever heard of uh, the section we have on the show called uh, 60 Second CPD? I've heard of it, yes. <laughs> what, what, what would you do a 60 Second CPD on then, Emily? Um, so my... I To think about this long and hard, um, but I would probably say practising gratitude is gratitude okay so in that case then here we go veterinary ramblers 60 second cpd emily holmes 60 seconds on practicing gratitude starting now so 
The art of practicing gratitude is something that is very simple. You don't need any fancy equipment. You don't need a notebook or anything. You literally can just think think about this in your head. Um, you can do this at the start of the day or at the end of the day. But it's essentially what it says in the tin. Think of three things that you are grateful for in your day. Um, there is scientific evidence that's out there that proves that um, practicing gratitude actually helps to lift your mindset and helps you look at things in a more positive way rather than in, in a negative way. Um, and another quick one as well is if you are really finding that you're really struggling with your mindset is you can actually do what um, one of my friends quoted as a gratitude bomb. So you essentially sit in a room, close your eyes or leave your eyes open and look for everything in the room that you are grateful for um, and helps you sort of stay grounded, keep yourself um, sort of bring yourself back into the present moment and just helps you take over that mindset that sort of got you. Well, wow. yeah, good. I love it. A good summary of practicing gratitude. A gratitude bomb, was it? Yes. Gratitude bomb. Well, I love the idea How of How does a gratitude bomb actually work then? So I find it helpful. I found, so I did sort of, I would like to say it's an experiment because I'm academic, but really it was just a test. Um, where I did, I practiced gratitude for about three to four months, religiously. Mm-hmm. Every single night before I went to bed, I wrote down three things that I was grateful for that day. And actually, I found, even reflecting back on it, I would catch myself in certain times. I'd just be going about my normal daily life. And then all of a sudden, it would sort of hit me. It would be like, you used to think about that a lot more negatively before. Mm-hmm. You you know, or you do something and before, like, I'm a, I'm a massive overthinker. I'm a recovering perfectionist and recovering overthinker. And <laughs> I, I love the idea, a recovering perfectionist. <laughs> and so I would, you know, sort of stress about things and overthink things as you normally would. Um, well, I normally would anyway. Um, and I found myself doing it less. And I found that I'd wake up in the morning and I I would feel less heavy. I'd feel lighter. And just by just writing three simple things down that I was grateful for Mm -hmm. just made me look at things from a different point of view. My mindset completely changed. Um, And there are, unfortunately, bad person, practice what you preach. Uh, There are days where I don't do it. Mm -hmm. But I did find that if I did fall off the bandwagon, so to speak, I would find that my mindset would slip. And then when I started to pick it back up again, I'd see it start to sort of get better. So although that's not a very scientific study and it's one participant, anecdotally, I would I would argue and say that it does make a massive difference. Mm-hmm. Mm. So and so you, you, you have cheat days then, do you? So if you've left it and haven't done it for a few days... Uh, you decide you're going to pick it back up again. So one of the things that you're grateful for is the fact that you're picking up your gratefulness. Yeah. 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 So that's one down. Yeah. Find, yeah. Two, find two more. That is cheesy though, isn't it? Isn't well, yeah. yeah. Bit of cheat well, well, it isn't necessarily that you even need to write it down either. So I used to find it writing it down quite cathartic in the sense of, you know, I'd actually write it and I'd see it there. But you could, you know, wake up in the morning and while, you may, while you're waiting for the kettle to boil to make your morning coffee, you could, if you're awake enough, anyway, I know I wouldn't be, but some people might be awake enough to, you know, think of three things while the kettle's boiling. It's mm. not something that's, 
it's not asking of you to buy a fancy notebook and a posh pen and you've got to make it all jazzy and like sketch it out. It is literally just thinking of three simple things that you are grateful for. You're grateful for the fact that you've got a kettle so you can have coffee in the morning. You're grateful for a roof over your head. If you've got nothing else going up here, you can always fall back on the fact that you've got a roof over your head, you've had food on the table. They're simple yeah. things that you forget about because they're always there, but actually there's something that you 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 could be grateful for. <laughs> Julian, we've had some cracking CPD here. Mm, have you got really a certificate? Have. Do you know, I have. Oh. I have. And you I'll care to share it with us? This certificate is, is hot off the press because I did one earlier. Uh, I mean, I always, I spend the whole of, of Wednesdays preparing a certificate in the library. And um, and I, I didn't really, I didn't have, a, didn't have a feel for you from your website and from your, your, your uh, Instagram profile. So I thought, well, there's a, I'll sketch something out, but then I'll I'll see how the evening evolves. And so what I've got, and I think, I think we've touched on most of this, so it's a Certificate of Empowerment. And All it right. Says, um, it says, this empowers you to take control of your own life and live it to the max. And what have we got in here? We've got, there's a hedgehog anaesthetised and uh, being monitored by one of one of Mike's own monitors, actually, mm. uh, to show your love of, of anaesthesia. There's a little horse there because you, you love horses, you love riding. I was at Longleat Safari Park uh, a couple of years back, and we were uh, we were pursued by by a deer, and oh. it was in fact a deer stalker, wasn't it? And so I thought, well, there you are, Sherlock Emily Holmes. There's a deer stalker. <laughs> <laughs> now all, all these all these photos I use are from my own um, collection. They're all photos I've taken. And so what I did is I, I searched empowerment uh, on, on my Apple Mac, and what it came up with was just pictures of books. And it struck me that actually we joked about the library earlier, but I think books and knowledge are real empowerment, aren't they? Because they give us the tools to understand different situations. And they may not tell us everything we need to know, but they'll tell us where we need to go yeah. to get those bits. And, and no, no knowledge is bad. It's all about how you use that knowledge, yeah. how you apply it. There you go. Now, we didn't mention Prairie Dogs, which is a bit of a shame because I had those on there. But uh, I thought there's, there's the three of us, little wise Prairie Dogs, <laughs> looking, looking out at the world, ready to answer anyone's questions on, uh, on, on, on mental health or on trying to find things to be thankful for. And here's one thing that I'm incredibly grateful for. This is my, my pet, Tapia, Ponda. He's actually, he's a stuffed Tapia, he's not, he's not even real, Emily, but <laughs> I've been told by, by no less a person than Matt Rendell that I can't get a real Tapia. So, so I've got Ponda, my, my pretend Tapia, and, and he's playing clock patience, uh, sorry, patience on the bed he likes to he likes to play card games and i'm very grateful not only that i have ponder um but but also that uh, that he plays the same card games that i do <laughs> spooky <Yeah>. that <laughs> amazing amazing speed he's better than i am uh, ponder, actually given to my, 
Bond was actually given to my wife, and she said, I don't want this, you have it. So. <laughs> See, you've rehomed. I, I have a rehomed, re-homed a stray animal. Yeah, yes, indeed. Yeah. Um, but but really, more than anything else, I think this certificate is inadequate in terms of what what you told us uh, about being grateful for the things we have. And it's very easy to lose sight of that, isn't it? In your day-to-day business, you, you feel sad, you feel put upon, and you don't then recognise the good things. We're not grateful that a client has acknowledged that he or she is grateful we did something well. What we take home is the fact that someone's been rude to us. They've been angry, they've been upset. Yeah. They've been worried about their pet. And we've taken that as a personal affront. Uh, and actually, if we go home, we think, well, wasn't there kind Mrs. Smith earlier who said, thanks so much for seeing Moggy earlier? So, Do you know what? Yeah, funny enough, to... I had this conversation last week. So we had um, a doggy that came in that wasn't, um, that wasn't very well. Um, and they rang a couple of days later um, and they said, I can imagine, especially in the times of living in a pandemic, um, she said, I imagine you don't get very much positive feedback. Um, she said, so I just wanted to let you know that, um, you know, I won't use his real name, but, you know, that Paddy's doing really well. Um, and I just wanted to say thank you so much to all of you because you were so kind and so helpful. Mm. And it took me aback because it's not very often that you have those conversations where mm. clients actually go, thank you so much for your help. It's like you say, yeah. you normally... It's the negative conversations mm. that stick with you and the negative sort of narrative communication that you have. But actually to have a client turn around and say, you really helped, thank you so much. And it's genuinely... Incredibly it's incredibly yeah. rare. It's incredibly rare, isn't it? Yeah. Well, I, th- I think it's, it's also, it is rare and it's very, very important. And I'm going to say, Emily Holmes, thank you very much for sharing all of the things that you've shared with us tonight. Thank you for having me. Well, no, you're very, very welcome. And uh, if we've touched on things that uh, ring true or you want to delve deeper into, then don't forget to get in touch with us. We're on all of the major platforms. Um, Send us a a tweet or an email or, or whatever. And if there are any subjects that you'd like us to delve further into, again, get in touch with us and share, like, subscribe, and uh, share the news and uh, Emily Emily Holmes thank you very very much indeed for joining us tonight and sharing uh, some real really powerful insights with us very much appreciate that may your dog go with you (laughs) may your dog go with you we're gratitude bombing you thank you thank you very much Emily